Hey, everybody. This is episode 40 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Yes, you heard that right. This is episode 40, 40 of Artist Soapbox. Thank you so much for your support, for listening and for sharing these episodes with others and for your encouragement. It all means so much. And special thanks to the Soapboxers, the patrons of Artist Soapbox via our Patreon page. If you aren't already doing so, please contribute a few dollars a month via our Patreon page to cover the costs associated with making this podcast. Patreon.com slash Artist Soapbox. Thank you, thank you. And if you'd like to connect via other social media outlets, Artist Soapbox is on the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See show notes for the details. In this episode, I'm talking with Alan Mall, a Durham-based playwright and writer with more than 12 years of writing experience for the stage and digital media. As playwrights and theater makers, Alan and I geek out hard in this conversation, considering how to cultivate audiences for our work, intentional storytelling and ownership of the narratives, the fragmenting of communities, and the questionable value of mixology. Alan Mall's plays have been performed in New York, Chicago, and theaters across North Carolina. Favorite productions of his plays include Framing the Shot at Sonoris Road Theater Wordshed Productions, Everscape at the New York City Fringe Festival in 2015 and Sonoris Road Theater, Tales and Fermentations with Seed Art Share in the City of Raleigh Museum, Too Late at the Carborough Arts Center, and An Awkward Family Boodle at Burning Coal Theater. Alan has also worked as a video game writer and voice director. He's a graduate of Duke University and holds a Master's in Performance Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Alan is a creative writer for branding, video, and content. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Alan. Hey! Thank you so much for being here. In our conversation prior to the podcast, you mentioned that you have experienced a shift in your work life. In addition to your theater work as a playwright, actor, and teacher, you are also a creative writer for branding, video, and content, and you have shifted to being a freelancer in that that work. So I'm imagining along with that shift, your schedule has changed and perhaps the relationship to your playwriting has changed as well. How how has this schedule shift affected your playwriting work? Oh, man. So uh, for those that um, haven't heard the term content marketing constantly, like people like me that work in marketing all the time, right now I make most of my living as a freelance writer for technology companies. And sometimes it turns into this thing called content strategy, which is a fancy term for outlining the entire approach that you want to take from a marketing point of view. So that would include not just the writing, but also, is there video on this thing? How many pieces of writing video or design are going to be accompanying this campaign, things like that. That's content strategy. And so what that means is, is that these technology companies start hiring people like me that to help tell them their, tell the story of their brand to all of their customers. And uh, those stories can sometimes be a little dry because it's a 
technology company talking about how good their servers are, <laughs> which, um, you know, doesn't lend itself to be as, you know, diverse a, or as dynamic a story as like, you know, Pericles, Prince of Tyre or whatever Shakespeare was writing. So anyway, um, and for about three months ago, I started working for myself full time. And that meant that I could like choose my clients a lot more. And it's also meant that I have a lot more time to spend on my own creative work. And um, the wonderful thing about it is I now have a lot more time to work on play scripts, to work as an actor, to figure out what other kind of cool creative projects I want to do. But the downside is I actually, I now have a lot more time than mm. I used to to do those things. And I think back when I was working full time, when I had to be somewhere from nine to five or nine to six every day, then drive home and then muster the energy to write in the evening after I'd been writing all day. I always thought like, oh, if I can work for myself, I will suddenly have all of this energy and time to be able to make five times as many things as I was making before. And I've made some more things and it's definitely great to have that option, but you begin to realize like, Oh, like just having the empty space, the empty canvas isn't enough to immediately start translating that into a lot of work. You need the structures and habits and also just the motivation and connection with your community to help you keep making good art. Do you have those structures in place or those connections in place for yourself now? I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. I found that the uh, community aspect is what has been going better for me lately. The idea of, um, cause like I'll speak mostly from writing. That's my, that's my wheelhouse, but, uh, writing always has to happen in a room by yourself. You might be able to write with somebody else in the room and occasionally share ideas, but when you're hammering out dialogue, trying to figure out the right way for a scene to go and working with character stuff, it takes silence. Like you need to be able to hear it. You have to be able to try things. You need to have the comfort of knowing you can write something terrible and never actually show it to another human being until it's ready. And I think um, for extroverts like me, that gets kind of lonely mm -hmm. sometimes. And what I've found is my biggest struggle is not like – can I come up with a good idea that would be worth writing about? But is anyone going to care that I am putting the time and energy into writing this thing? And so I, what I've found that helps a lot with that is having a community of other creators that I share my work with. And in the past, that's meant like writing partners who are also screenwriters in addition to playwrights. So that way they can bring kind of a different perspective to the work that we share with each other. These drafts that are in progress that we're talking over and everything. And what I really love about that is you get you get a really tiny microcosm of people that you know want to find out what happens next in the work that you're doing. Even if it's as simple as like I had a question about this or I really love this thing, sometimes for a person that's been working on it by themselves for weeks, that's all you need is one person to tell you like this is great. I want to find out what happens next or I'm really interested in this. Maybe you could adjust this thing and that would make it more clear and things like that. On the structures level, in terms of like getting good habits, one thing that I've been preaching a lot, both to myself and others and trying with some success to get into is I always tell people it's like, it's really easy to let deadlines motivate everything you do and say like, well, I have to finish this thing by then or it won't happen. And the last script I finished for the city of Raleigh museum was a play about like a craft breweries in Raleigh. That one had a hard deadline and I'm not going to lie. Having the deadline of knowing, okay, in mid March, Alan, you have to finish the script. <laughs> it meant that I could just like, you know, hit, hit the, uh, you know, computer every day and get it knocked out. But what I found is a lot more, a lot more helpful is having a schedule of time that you work on things every day that belong to you. I mean, for me, it's in the morning. I try to get, try to make the first like hours of my writing for me, whether that's just writing down thoughts I have about things that I want to accomplish or 
journaling or just like working on a scene and dialogue and things like that. My morning times are my freshest times and I don't need like, you know, like to be at a razor sharp edge for writing all the marketing stuff because the stories are a lot less complicated. Mm. Now, like, uh, so what that means is if I can do that every day, that means that I have an hour where I don't have to be at my best. I just need to show up and do the work and everything. And that helps a lot with making progress on a script long-term. Um, and the nice thing about trying to have a schedule rather than just relying on deadlines to motivate you is you don't always have to wait for that last minute panic to set in before you're like driven to try to tell the story that you want to tell. Because, I mean, those of us that, you know, we, a lot of your listeners probably got through college. They were used to like, oh, the term paper is due tomorrow. So I'm going to stay up all night and crush it because you know that you will come up with something by the end of the night. There will be something to show another human being, probably your poor TA who has to make (laughs) sense of whatever thing that you like came up with. But if you, (laughs) if you're writing it all at the last minute, you're removing probably the most important thing to making your writing truly excellent, which is the revision process. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I don't know about for you, but definitely for me, I need that percolation time. I mean, it needs to sit for a while. I need to walk away from it for a while and come back. And if I don't give myself that space, which I haven't done in the past, it's just not its not the level that I would be pleased to ultimately share oh, with com- other people. Completely. And I mean, I think it's really easy as an artist to get intimidated, especially if you're on Twitter or something where you can follow these people you admire a lot, like Paula Vogel or Lin-Manuel Miranda in my case. Like I can follow these famous playwrights on Twitter and see them talking about the work they're doing and showing these things in progress and seeing like the work get performed everywhere. And you think to yourself like, man, I will never be as good as that person. And what a lot of them say when they, when they're asked about it is like great writing is revising. It's, it's, you will never be as brilliant the first time you do something as you can be with it. But that takes that schedule. It takes that discipline of being willing to work on a piece long term. I mean, my favorite play that of mine that I've written, Everscape, like I began working on that one in like spring of 2010. And I don't think I showed it to a, an audience until 2013 mm. because it's one, it took a while to write. And two, it's just, I had to revise it to the point where it actually made sense to someone outside of Alan Mall's head. Yes. Yes. I think also that waiting until the last minute sort of panic induced inspiration sets, sets us up to believe that inspiration is everything yeah. and adrenaline is everything. And actually, as you just mentioned, it's, it's sort of the accumulative uh, impact of showing up for the work every single day and just grinding it out and making that a practice rather than waiting for some fictional lightning bolt yeah. that's going to stri- strike. Cause it never does. I mean, yeah. I mean, occasionally it does, but it's like, that is rare. Oh Yeah. It's like, I mean, you're, you're, by showing up, you're allowing yourself to have that, to have that inspiration. I mean, the joy of doing it at the same time every day and talking about it, and, well, and working, working on something for at least an hour every day means that when you have those lightning bolts of inspiration, there's a better chance of it happening when you're at your computer ready to write. <laughs> because, I mean, artists can probably relate. That's like, you know, especially writers, it's like we're living our own heads so much that when you're out at like a bar or something, you might have like, you know, your second beer with your friends and then something like it hits and you're like, I have it now. I know how to fix that scene. But you're nowhere near your computer, and a lot of us are way too polite to, like, just drop everything, leave the beer half-finished at the bar, immediately rush home to write it. 
kind of thing. Right. I only have a napkin. Someone give me a pen. Yeah, completely, right, right, completely. Right. Yeah. And a, a good buddy of mine, um, Ian Finley, who's also a very accomplished playwright, like um, we like to talk about the the idea. There's an old there's an old idea that there are the Dionysian writers that are all driven by inspiration and crazy chaos, and then there are the Apollonian writers that are all craftsmen mm. and craftspeople, and they tinker with it and they refine it until it's perfect. And Ian is, Ian and I are more like Apollonian, like we want to just keep fixing it and we want to concentrate and find the best thing. And I said, like, so Ian, what do you think about the Dionysian guys though? The ones like Jack Kerouac that can just write these crazy things in like a big burst. And Ian says. I believe the Dionysian writers are lying. (laughs) There's reason why was because those huge bursts of inspiration never produce polished art. You can make something really magnetic and cool to look at, but Ian's convinced, and I think I agree with him. There was always an editing and revising process that that happened before the crazy burst of inspiration turned into what you're reading or watching on stage. (laughs) Right, right. I someone said, right. Write when you're drunk, revise when you're sober, which I, I am not recommending that people get drunk and write. But again, it speaks to this idea that you have to have a seriousness about the revision process. Yeah. It just can't just be like, you know, vomiting onto the page and expecting it to come out beautifully. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the nice thing is, is that there is joy still in that part of the work. I mean, like personally, like I've. I found like a rhythm for me that I'm not sure I can recommend because it can take a while to finish things. But there have been times that I've started scripts like a, more than a year before I finish them. I'll put them down for a long time and then come back to them. And that's when like I have the idea that I need to make to help finish the thing that I started before. And it's like you need that different headspace like you're talking about. So let's talk a little bit about your your process and some questions that you have been wrestling with that I'm also really interested in. And um, one of the questions you said that you are kind of working through is this idea of how you can write about things that are meaningful and that will also have an audience. How is that affecting the work that you're doing as a playwright, that question? Yeah, it's uh, it's a thorny one because I think like what makes theater different from lots of other forms of writing and everything is that you're always writing something that's going to be spoken out loud or at least performed live in front of an audience. And that audience is crucial to it. Theater being theater. I mean, like a lot of us grew up like when we were in school, we read Peter Brooks book, the empty space. And the first line of it is literally, I can turn any empty space into a theater by having someone do something and another person watch them. Right them do it. And I think like that's the the big question that I'm grappling with right now is who is my audience for the work that I'm doing? And uh I'll tr- this this might meander a bit. Okay. So um one big thing is it's like I think anyone who wants to create things and is also socially aware right now. You're paying attention to the news. I mean, you know, it's like it is impossible to pay attention to the news right now. And not be inspired one way or another to want to tell a story that matters, period. Because it's like there was a time, I think, that like and when – I mean in, when politics, when like uh, the world we lived in, like people all seemed to get along a lot better. And it's always these kind of halcyon days that we look back on with rose-colored glasses. There were always problems. There were always difficulties. There were always fragments in communities. But I think now we're especially aware, especially in the United States, of the deep like divisions 
in both politics and everything else. And I think anyone right now with a conscience, for example, like you read about all of the awful things that are happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's so easy to be moved by just like the idea of children being taken away from their parents, children being like confined into spaces, no matter Mm. what word you want to use to describe that, that is where they're separated from their families. You can't not be moved by that. But I think a struggle that I'm running into with this a bit is like, like, I'm not sure that like a straight white Christian playwright from the American South who's been well-educated and everything else is the right person to tell the story of a migrant family trying to struggle to get to the United States and being and facing that kind of oppression and everything. It's not to say that I can't try to write it, but the level of research, the level of like understanding a community different from mine is a pretty big obstacle for me to try to overcome. Now, I'm not telling – anyone listening to this podcast that it's a bad idea to write about those things. But I think now, especially in 2018, we're so conscious of who are the voices that are telling these stories. And we want to give more opportunities to those people that are connected to those communities, perhaps by family, perhaps just like by culture, like you grew up with people like that and everything. And I can't claim that stake. Like I'm, I'm like it for me, it's purely like outside looking in trying to understand it. So it's easy at that point to throw up my hands and be like, well, I'm not sure I can write about this honestly, so I probably shouldn't write about it at all. And I think the thing that I'm realizing more and more and other other writers who are better than me have taken this path in the past is I think if you are a person of privilege that wants to write about these communities' struggles, be willing to do that. But you have to listen a lot, try to understand a lot. And I think one thing that's a very helpful way to do it is – Use metaphor and like a even a fantastic or fictional environment as a means of telling that kind of story. It's something that's like um and this is going to meander, so I apologize. No, please. Uh, in my marketing work, the thing that always impresses people that don't come out of a creative background that I am telling stories for for these brands is. I help them come up with a metaphor for what their product does or what their services do for someone. It could be like, you know, you you were like that loyal concierge that always shows up when you <laughs> when you're at home or you were like like, you know, like that snarky kid in the back of the class that always knows all the right answers before the teacher does. And companies just they these guys that I talk to, their their faces light up and they get real excited because they're like, "Yes, there's a story there. There's a metaphor. That is who I am. I am that snarky kid in the back of the class." And I think connecting that back to the idea of like, how do you write for communities that are not your own? I'm like, I would suggest do what all these like, like authors like J.R.R. Tolkien, like C.S. Lewis did and create a fantastic environment that allows you to express the ideas and feelings you have, but perhaps won't have the same sort of like cultural landmines bedded in it that you are going to step on if you're a person of privilege trying to write for these about and for these communities by making it fictional. I mean, like, you know, it's like fantasy authors have often done this with like, you know, it's like, it'll be the story of some, like, you know, it's like work trying to like (laughs) live among the elves. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, the elves are all like these haughty, very like magically educated people. And they look down on like the ones that are good at fighting. And it's like, you know, so you make it like, like what happens when there's this like, you know, person that they look at like, no, no, no you are the brawny warrior type. Mm-hmm. You're not the kind of person that casts spells. What happens when that person wants to be the type that casts spells? And that's an incredibly crude like comparison, but it's like it allows the writer to write about a fictional environment in like in a way that can like help touch on the same things that matter to them mm-hmm. without like treading in an area that I think is unsafe for them. Well, not unsafe, but difficult and laden with all kinds of like, you know, 
inconsistencies and missteps? Well, I think that there are questions to be raised about how we support stories and narratives without co-opting them. Absolutely. Or without speaking from a place of authority that we don't actually have. And I know that I have become more intentional about inserting myself and my perspectives into the types of stories that I want to tell. Because, I I mean, I do feel like I have something to say and I want to say something and I want to lend my voice. But is my voice the best voice for this particular moment? Or do I just need to sit back and listen and help, you know, support the work of other people? It's a question. And I think it's really hard for playwrights because we... We feel this need to be adding our voices and making work. I mean, this is the the power that we feel like we have is to give voice to these characters, but it has to be done responsibly um, and intentionally rather than just saying like, well, I can write, so I will write, so I should write, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, like, it's one of those ones where I absolutely agree with you that I think a lot of it just comes like sometimes your role is to sit back and listen and support those artists that are trying to do that kind of work. I mean, that can be a monetary type support. It's like for me, I'm blessed and thankful that I get to like make enough money from my freelance writing that I can support my friends through their Patreons and things like that. It can be as simple as like when I have a play to, that's going to get directed, trying to choose someone from a less represented group to direct my play. Cause I really want to give them a chance to get out there. Even mm-hmm. if like they're not as experienced as other artists that I might ask. And when it comes, if you really are driven to want to write about these things, I would tell people like find a writing partner from one of those communities that you, that knows you knows your work and you respect theirs and work on it together. Now it, and it could be the only product that comes out of that is that you, the person of privilege now understands this community a lot better, but that's a wonderful thing. Even if you don't come up with a script or a production, that's going to be see the light of day. Right. And I have written such a script that allowed me to think through some of my feelings and uh, around my own privilege And I got to the end of it and I had some people read it. And ultimately, I realized that this probably will never be produced. It was an exercise for me personally, which is hard to swallow because every time you birth a new (laughs) completed piece, it's so laborious. It takes so much time. And so the idea of putting this away never to be performed is really hard. But that's not the purpose. That's not the purpose for me. It would be redundant for me to put this out into the world. It was more personal practice than anything else. And I, I feel good that I did that and that I had enough distance that I could say, all right, you know, this is, this is my thing I needed to go through. Nobody else actually needs to enjoy this. (laughs) It wasn't very good anyway, so maybe nobody would have. (laughs) Well, I told you I really want to read it. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, it's like, I mean, what you're describing there is like something I think the great thing about this process is like you got better connected to your community and your your fellow artists from different backgrounds by doing that work. And I think a lot of times as writers and as playwrights, we think, okay, I have made this thing. And until it's like on stage, full production in front of the lights and like hundreds of people are there, it was not a successful piece. It's like, no, I mean, you learned how to express something that was never expressed Mm -hmm. before. You learned how to like tell a story that you like, you know, had not previously tried to tell. And that experience matters. Now it can be very discouraging if you felt like you spent a year putting your, your time and energy into it and then it never saw the light of day. But it gets at like, I mean, 
as an, as artists, it's like, you know, we are more than just like the dividends from the work that we make. Right. And it, and it adds up. So I had this experience that will then lead to the next experience. You know, you don't ideally in your life, you don't write one piece and then you're done. Each, each piece builds on something that came before it. So even if that's done in a way that isn't performed publicly, you still have that work. You've still made that progress. And so it still counts. Yeah. I would like to circle back to the work that you have done in content marketing and branding mm-hmm. as it relates to theater. Do you have any thoughts about how we might, as theaters, cultivate an audience across the triangle and what we should be looking at when we, um, when we look at our seasons? Yeah, yeah. That's a... Uh... It's funny. It's like I've talked so much about playwriting, but I'm realizing this this is going to sound a little bit pompous, so forgive me. This might be the most important work that I'm working on right now mm. <laughs> because writing at its best – if I write a great play, it's going to impact me and the communities that produce my work and that I work with. If I can f- help fix the marketing problems in Triangle Theater, then like I will have made an impact much bigger than just myself. And I realize kind of how – Don Quixote like that might sound because it's very it's a very difficult thing that I think people who with more experience that who are smarter than me have struggled to meet. So I'm trying to approach it with a level with the right combination of like audacity and humility, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um I think the biggest problems that the triangle's facing is not that the triangle theater community is facing trying to market things, is that it is not that there are not people who would want to come see our work because we live in one of the best educated areas in the country and like it is financially doing very well. I mean, it's not, not that there's no one struggling in the triangle, but there are a lot of people out there with good jobs that have the resources and the time to be able to consume theater. They probably grew up in like and uh, going to school and, and experiencing live performance arts. So they have a bit of an appreciation. But I think like a lot of them might not even be aware that some of these companies exist and are doing work outside of what they see at like the Durham Performing Arts Center or whatever when the touring company comes through. And so I think what theaters are struggling with now especially is the kind of audience cultivation that you're talking about and getting that audience to come back to the theater and see it as something essential and meaningful. And I think one of the big things about that that makes it tough is theater is – a pretty much entirely analog art form. Like chances are whoever's listening to this podcast is listening to it on a smartphone. Right. So that's one, that same smartphone, if they get tired of me going on and on about things, they can turn the podcast off and stream a video. They can go see what's going on on Twitter. They can read some news. They can go on Instagram. They can go on social media. There's like about, and there's about 18 other things that I haven't right. even mentioned, like mobile games and things like that. At any moment, if you become bored or less than engaged with the current piece of content you're consuming on a smartphone, you can immediately go to something else. And that's not bad. It just means that like that kind of content is always catering towards a really short attention span and knows that at any moment someone can quit and see what else is going on. Theater demands more of the audience than that. Like uh, there are sometimes theater productions where you can sneak out if things are not going the way you want. But in general, you're in a darkened room with lots of other people and you're probably sitting in the middle of the row. And so if you find the play deadly boring and don't want to see it anymore, you're not going to be able to you're get trapped. up and yes, <laughs> you're not going to be able to get up and leave. And also it's like, you know, it requires a certain time commitment. You have to show up and be there for an hour and a half or two hours to see it. You probably paid a 
a decent amount for the ticket and everything else. And so it's tough because, I mean, right now streaming streaming uh, companies like Netflix for $12 a month will allow me to watch an ungodly amount of like TV or movies if I had the disposable time to do so. Whereas theater will definitely, almost definitely charge you more than that for an evening right. of performance. And lots of people have talked about this besides me, but I think the good news is theater offers something that none of those other digital services can offer, which is the actual visceral live experience of being in the room when actors are telling their stories and things are happening. And I think like the more theater can lean into the idea that like we're making experiences that are really meaningful and different that you can't consume on a screen. Mm. That is one thing that will really set it apart. The other side of it is going to be that kind of audience cultivation though. And I think that's what I'm working with theaters a lot to help them understand is you can't just market theater to individuals. You can, but like in the end, you're hoping that if you're hoping that like one person is going to leave their home, pay for one ticket and go sit in the theater, hoping that they run into some friends or people that can talk to about the show, you're kind of like, you know, heading for a shallow goal. There's not that, not that many people out there that want to do that. And so a lot of what I'm telling them is you want to try to cultivate groups of people that are going to want to see it. So for example, one initiative that I worked with um, Sonorous Road in Raleigh about a lot, as I've said, whenever you're making a play that's relevant to a certain profession, for example, like we just did one called Dry Powder that was all about private equity investors in New York City and high finance. I'm, and I, what I one marketing um, movement that I suggested for them is let's go to every single major national and international bank in the area, call their HR department, like get in touch with someone there and say, hey, we are making this show that is relevant to people that work there. At, at your place, it would be an excellent opportunity for like anyone that wants to do team building at your company to bring like 10 of their people to come see it. We'll give you a group rate. We'll make sure that you have a ch that like all of you get a chance to go. We'll cater the experience mm -hmm. to you, welcome you when you get to the theater, reserve your seats and everything. And that way, those people that might not even think of theater as an option would then be able to like consume a play. And not 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 to describe not not to say that theater people are don't work in finance, but I don't know that many actors that have connections in that group, and that's one more way of getting someone into the theater who doesn't already know people that are in the play. Mm -hmm. Other things, I mean, it's just trying to get up the idea of returning to the experience notion, like make something that people are going to want to talk about before the show, during the show, after the show, and so. I do a lot of work with um, Renee Wimberly's company, Seed Art Share, and she's very big on let's feed people when they come to the show. And um, the craft beer play that I alluded to earlier, that one we got breweries that I wrote about to donate their beer to part of the production. And so, like, it wasn't just that you would, you know, see a show, like a, a brief play about trophy brewing. You would then be able to taste it immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating that sensory experience that you're not going to be able to get from watching something on a screen. It might, it might demand more of you as an audience, but there's an entire like group of people that you're consuming it with and, and, and you're having that time of like drinking, eating together. And it makes theater a bit more of a like spiritual sensory experience instead of just something that you're doing for your own personal entertainment. It sounds like you're also keying into this idea of, partnership and collaboration, which, you know, adds adds numbers of, of potential audience members and participants. It increases the investment of groups of people. And I think that it's very easy to think that we're only making work for other people who make theater yeah. rather than 
even just the idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, even just the idea that people who don't make theater might want to come to see what we're doing. I think we've moved away from that, which is really interesting. It's like, well, if, if people could watch Netflix, then they will, unless they actually make theater and they're not going to appreciate it. And maybe we are suffering as theater uh, makers. Maybe we're suffering from a little bit of a lack of imagination and underestimating our potential audience members and the fact that they very well might want to sit in a darkened room with a group of people and have this synchronized breathing and go through this emotional journey because it simply doesn't feel the same to do that with a group than it does when you're by yourself and your PJs on your couch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a concept that like a lot of spiritual communities bring up a lot, but I think theater can also reclaim is the sense of oneness. It's like, you know, you could, I mean, there are many, many reasons why our, our country and communities are suffering the kind of divisions and fractional things that we spoke about earlier. But I think one of the biggest ones is, is it has that we have become fragmented. We don't have like the same, you know, it's like whether it's a bowling league or a church or just like, or or, or a theater community that you all share the work with and share like these experiences with, I think the fact that we've gotten more and more segmented means that like our sense of audience is smaller and, that can sometimes be all right if you want to write something that's for like 20 people that are in your theater, your theater community, and then hope that someone in the and someone else outside of your community comes to see it. But I've always wanted things to be bigger than that. And I've always been enchanted by like, you know, art that really does like bring in people from all kinds of backgrounds that says that this is not just about like our tiny little group. This is about the community of Durham, about like the people that are like that are my neighbors that come from all kinds of backgrounds than me. And as you said, like they're not just theater people that grew up doing the work or did it in college and that these are all their friends. They're people that really enjoy live art. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the work that you are doing that you're in process with. I know you have two projects that you are working on. Would you like to speak about those? As I said earlier, like having all of the freelance time that I've had means that I have been sowing a lot of artistic seeds mm-hmm. lately. So I'm like, I'm really hoping that I can get some of these things to take root. And these are two ideas that I've become really, really interested in and attached to that I want to be able to like dig into that I am already digging into. And uh, one of them is like, because I have not written something for the screen in a while, I really want to write a web series pilot that could ideally become a mini series or become like, you know, a short film or something about the idea of a lot of the things we've been talking about, about theater spaces that are being converted into other things or the community aspect of like what happens to art when it becomes increasingly fractionalized and consumable and everything else. And so the basic premise of this pilot that I'm working on is it's about a former theater that is in a place like Durham. It probably will be set in Durham. That's a city that I now that I'm very familiar with, but a theater that has been purchased and then converted into a cocktail bar <laughs> and high end restaurant. And I think what inspired me by this is going to sound a little bit shallow, but I was reading the New York times like a little while ago. And there was a comment saying, saying like, if you want to see where all of our culture's artistic energy is being poured into, look at how much the food community has exploded all over social media and TV. I mean, and it's not just about cooking shows, but like the sense of just like, you know, writing about food on the internet, photographing food, photographing like high end beverages, 
even inventing the term mixology that I didn't hear at all right. until about 10 years ago. But the sense of like mixing high-end cocktails, it's like we like a lot of our creative energy as Americans and the society in general, I think, has been poured into these ultra consumable objects, food, drink, and everything else to the point where it's dazzling to look at. It can taste really, really beautiful. But at the end of the meal, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Like you've literally consumed it. And then like, perhaps you will remember the way it tastes and everything, but it is no longer on your plate. It no longer is in the world and everything. And you compare that to, you know, it's like writing something or making a play where it's like you're, you've brought together this something as a community to do this thing live in front of people. It's like, Food, like, you know, is a an art form that is utterly consumable. And mm -hmm. I think being interested in that was what made me want to maybe want to write this. And so the central premise is this theater has been converted into a cocktail bar and boutique restaurant, and all of the characters there are people that used to work in the theater. And like, you know, it's like the playwright mixes drinks from behind the bar, like the director is the one running the kitchen, and like the set guy is the one that's like, you know, it's like one of the line cooks and everything else. Many of and the actors, of course, are servers because many of them already have a lot of experience in that area. And it's kind of that in it's really about like art among the ashes. What happens when like the place where you used to make your art has now been like purchased and then repackaged as something different than what you were already doing. And I mean, you still have to earn a living. And so you're still mm -hmm. working there doing the thing. And I think like the ongoing plot of the series will be this will be that the stage is still there in in the restaurant and they're trying to figure out how can we integrate live performance into this new world that we're we're now inhabiting and working in and everything else. Mm. So he, so I have a question for you. You we are as a society presenting drink and food as art. You mentioned people taking pictures of this. I mean there are evenings built around it. It is then consumed and enjoyed over conversation and then talked about and returned to um, later. And then you also have live performance as art that is consumed, like theater, and yet people aren't investing that same kind of engagement and energy into the live performance as they are into this food and drink. So what, metaphorically and literally, what is this food and drink culture feeding customers that theater and live performance is not providing? It's a great question. And then I I don't know if my answer is going to be complete at all because I think I'm still trying to answer it at the same time. But I think the first thing that, that I go to is the sensory experience of the whole thing. And that's something that like, uh, you know, you go there, you, you go and you consume a really, really nice meal and the texture of the food is just really elegantly planned. The flavors are all like, you know, balanced. So it's like the saltiness doesn't overwhelm, like the sweetness and everything else. It's, they try to find herbs that are like, you know, that are going to have just the right taste and everything. So I think because we're willing to pour a lot more of our resources and energy into curating those kinds of experiences for people, I think it is creating like a more sophisticated package than like people are used to getting at the theater. And that's not to denigrate the work that's being done in the theater, but I think more often than not, it's being done by people who aren't being given the time and energy because their careers call them to make a living doing something other than acting and writing and directing. And so like the product that people get in theater isn't as easy to consume. It doesn't go down quite as smoothly mm -hmm. as a really nice meal or a really well-made cocktail. And I think the other part about it is like, uh, it's just, that's where our society has chosen to put its energy. It's um, like, we have, we think it's like, 
you don't have to go to the theater every week to survive. You do need to eat mm. <laughs> regularly. And I think like, because people still want to have some sort of dramatic, different experience from their everyday, it's much easier for them to conceive of like, Oh, let's go have a nice meal at this place that we've never been to before and see what that restaurant experience is like. And they might not say the same thing about like, Oh, we haven't been to the theater in mm. a month. So mm. let's like find something that we haven't seen that's playing right now. That's interesting. So, it's easier to justify spending a good deal of money on food because you need food to eat, but yet you still crave that, as you said, dramatic experience, but it's harder to, it's in our current culture, we don't think of this type of art as being a necessity. Rather, it is so far in the luxury category that people aren't willing to spend that same kind of money um, on it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other side of it is it gets back to the idea of like choosing a small community for your audience that doesn't have to be that small. I mean, there are restaurants that that cater to a certain like demographic and like, you know, background and everything else, but many of them are okay with you coming in to eat there as long as you have the money to pay. Right. Now, it's not always true. Sometimes they'll they'll see you in jeans and a t-shirt at like a high, fine dining place and tell you like, I'm sorry, sir, ma'am, but their jackets are required here or something. But like, whereas like theater might not on its surface seem to have the same level of like barrier to entry, uh. but many people like, uh, it's like, might not feel as welcome inside a live theater space as they would like, well, like I know I need to eat today. And like, so eat. And so like, I want to try like, you know, that Dominican restaurant that I haven't been to, or I want to go to that Sichuan Chinese place that like, isn't that's there. And people there wouldn't, the patrons of a restaurant might not think like, well, I am not from like Beijing. Therefore I can't eat at this place. Or like my family's not from Scotland. Therefore the Haggis restaurant is not the place for me. Mm-hmm. The why you would want to go to a Haggis restaurant is an excellent <laughs> question. If you're outside of Scotland. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's like you, we, we get the idea. It's mm-hmm. that like restaurants want to cater to the biggest possible audience. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's like too many times theater has often produced work that is primarily aimed at the theater community. And so there'll be plays that are about performing about like, uh, it's like the process of making live art and everything. And they can be very beautiful and very well done and even appeal to people that are outside that community. But the um, mental leaps that you take to get there are a bit more complicated than just I'm hungry and I want to eat. I know that you are working with this idea of, inclusivity and barriers to entry and all of that in this other project that you are working on that's a play. Is that right? Yeah. It's starting out as a play. I might try to convert it into like a, a screenplay format just so I can like, again, try to try writing in a medium that I haven't spent as much time in. But um, yeah, the premise behind this one essentially is in the working title is at the gate, but it's about gatekeeping in geek culture as it pertains to like fantasy literature, as it pertains to like video games and things like that. And a lot of what's inspired me by that has been things in the news about like uh, it's like these really outspoken, even like toxic individuals inside like, you know, whether it's like the fantasy lit community on Twitter or like the video game community that will essentially say we're tired of video games that are trying to be too politically correct or social justice themed. And so, and again, like it's a, it's really amazing how much these, like this minority of angry people will get mad about something very, very small. Like it's not Mm -hmm. like, you know, 
the game is it would not be like the game forcing you to play as a, as a trans individual, but it's rather like there will be one trans character in the play that will happen to mention they were not like that the, the current like gender they exhibit was not the one they were assigned at birth, and these angry, usually white male gamers will fly into a frenzy and said that they're being preached to, and it's like. And like the natural reaction to, I think, healthier minded people is just like, well, you're representing diversity. Like they're not all these characters that are this way, but there is one that happens to bring this up. Why does that offend you so much? And they just say, like, well, I'm tired of being, being forced to have this down my throat. That this is like this is like, you know, this sort of social justice warrior nonsense. And I think like I mean, obviously, I find it kind of ridiculous, but I'm intrigued by it. Like, I mean, like, how do you sing? How do you think that you own a story or a world so much that you get to decide who gets to consume it and like even dictate to the writers of that world? Like, you shall not write characters mm. like this. And the Star Wars community has unfortunately been in the news a lot lately about this because they'll when they don't like a particular. It's almost all, and it's almost always a woman or a person of color's character. They will take to social media and harass them. They will tell them they don't like the movie. They were the worst part of the new Star Wars movie that happened to make billions of dollars. And they'll say, like, you know, you ruined this movie. You ruined my childhood. And it was just like, I, for me, I'm like, like, where do you get off? Like talking right. to like these like these artists that have like worked hard to get to this place that are doing good work on screen, and to tell them they don't belong in like the art that you're consuming. Now it's like the natural thing is, it's like if you really hate it that much, buddy, just don't consume it, <laughs> right? <laughs> or create your own world because this is these are made up. These are we 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 are allowed to make our own fantasy worlds. And I was having this long conversation with my husband actually about the Star Wars movies and this idea that as as a creator you could make a world that is that has such an impact on our culture that people feel ownership of it that they're so invested in this yeah. made up place that they you know they have such an emotional response to anything that that has uh, a, that might change this world and so then it made me again think about all right well as a playwright or as a as a creator again this intentionality around what type of a world am i creating for the people who i want to consume yeah. my work because I can actually create for the maybe the only time the world that I would like to see yeah to to create a a fantasy that may impact reality and what a what an opportunity that is yeah I mean this could be a much longer conversation, but I think there's a real like lack of uh utopian fantasies that are being written right now. Mm-hmm. I had a um, Byron Woods from The Independent once asked me about Everscape. He's like, why do you think so many plays and stories about fantastic worlds are often so dystopic and mm. violent and everything? And again, it was a much longer conversation about it. But I think it's like we reflect the world that we live in. And the world we're living in is one that's fragmented, violent. People are trying to figure out how to like live together and kind of struggling to come up with the answers that are satisfying to everyone. And I think that's why we keep making this Earth, it's that way. So I think there's a big vacuum waiting to be filled of things that are much more like positive and like inclusive and holistic. But like, um, and so what I think I'm what inspired the work, the play that I'm working on when it comes to this kind of like gatekeeping and who the story belongs to is that question of how do you have a fantastic, inclusive world that is going to reach the biggest audience it possibly can. But also, like, deal with the people that you're trying to include in that world 
who don't want to be included with other people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that because they are a minority. Thank heavens for that. But they are incredibly vocal. They can definitely like sully the waters for everybody else. They can make it a lot harder for people that just want to get along and enjoy the world together with others in peace to enjoy it because this loud, really vitriolic, angry community is still part of that fan base. Mm -hmm. And the thing I'm writing now is about a bunch of people that work in a fantasy lit panel at like a convention like Dragon Con or Comic Con that and the idea behind these is that you invite authors that like you really, really like to come to these events and answer questions and sign books and everything. And the premise behind this one is all the people that work on the panel who are mostly aspiring writers, but really just fans. They're consumers of like literature written by like Ursula Le Guin, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien and all these people. And so they're inviting like fantasy writers they really love. And conscious of how diverse their community is, for the upcoming year in the story, they are inviting like, you know, it's like multiple people of color, a trans author, you know, it's like it's like somebody who's from like, you know, a community that's like like Iran or someplace that's been very fragmented politically. And so like when they're planning the new panel, the, the one like um, cis white male in the group is like, we got a really great diverse group. Have you guys thought about including someone from who's ideologically diverse from the rest of this group? And of course, everyone else is kind of like politely like, well, what do you mean by that? And, right. and so because they're worried that he's thinking about just inviting some kind of angry men's rights activist. And the person that he wants to invite is a, like a, a fantasy author who's been very well reviewed, who has sold bestsellers, but is an outspoken conservative Christian. Mm. And so the idea behind that one, I think, is that like it's like how do you include someone who is do, who this Christian writer who is doing his best to make good art that speaks to him and speaks to the world that he wants to reach, but who believes things, whether it pertains to homosexuality, trans rights, like um, and a variety of other subjects. That are these he believes things that are anathema to the larger inclusive group that he that like they're thinking about inviting him to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And so how the plot develops from there, I'm still like working on. But there is kind of this sense of just like it's like you want to include as many people as possible in this world. But what happens when one of the first people that you're including politely, perhaps, but still does not believe that other people should be part of the group. Right. And I think like, and it's a subject that like, it's very easy for us to have the knee jerk, like inclusive reaction of like, well, no, those people cannot be a part of it. But again, that gets right back to fragmenting the community that we've been talking about a lot. It's like when you shave the world down more and more until it's only the kinds of people that you get along with in there, it can sometimes mean that your reach outside of that community is drastically diminished. And so that's kind of the thorny question that I really want to tackle with that, mm -hmm. with this play is how do you include everybody without like meaning that you're inviting someone in who's going to like ruin it for everyone else? These are wonderful questions, Alan, and I can't wait to talk with you in more detail about them. I feel like there are so many things that so many subjects we raised today that we need to come back together and, and talk about. But thank yeah. you so much for being here. Yeah, thank really, you, Tamar. I'm so, really. I mean, the work you're doing on this podcast is wonderful. I mean, it's just if nothing else, it gives me a chance to like uh, geek out and watch, listen to some of my favorite local artists talk about their work and yes. everything. But it's like, <laughs> I just I love that you're getting people to tell these stories and everything else and creating the space that we can talk about what's hard, what's easy, and what we're hoping to do. Thank you so much. 
Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, you may do so via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. We are recording today in Shadowbox Studios in Durham, North Carolina. You can check their website out, shadowboxstudio.org. Information and all sorts of goodies can be found on our website, artistsoapbox.org. And we're out. <laughs>